Psalms 2. If you want to turn there, that's what we're going to take a look at uh, today. Um, title of the lesson is, We Need the King. And uh, I'm going to ask you to follow along closely because there's a concept that is taught there. Uh, it's not easily picked up on with just a casual reading, uh, but there's a concept that we need to understand and what the psalmist is saying there and how we can benefit, how we can benefit from that. I'll go ahead and pull up this uh, next slide here. Psalms 2 is a messianic psalm, and the psalmist records in this context here, these 12 verses, and he's going to talk about man's rebellion, he's going to talk about God's reply to that rebellion, and then he's going to reveal that divine plan. So there's three points we'll take a look at. There is a king, and that's what the psalmist talks about, that God has his king. And then there is man's rebellion, and that we need that king. I'll go ahead and put up that first point that there is a king. I'm going to give you just a little bit of background to the book of Psalms in its entirety before we get right into this, because I think it'll help us, to, help us to kind of understand what is being said in Psalms 2, but also in Psalms 1 and 2. So as you take a look at the book of Psalms in its entirety, there's 150 Psalms, poems that are recorded there. And as you take a look at those psalms collectively, you begin to kind of break them down and try to grasp, wrap your mind around what's being recorded for us there. If you take a look at the last five, they all end in, or they declare praise towards God. The last five, all praise towards God. The first two. Psalms 1 is about the man of God, or the godly man, and how he is blessed by meditating upon God's law day and night. Psalms 2, God has set his king. Bookends to the book of Psalms. Last five, hey, reader, this is where we're headed. Towards praise, towards God. The introduction, the man of God delights in his law day and night. And he has a king look to him. This is where the book is headed. In between, you have a whole lot of history about or a whole lot of history about Israel, and you have God's promises. But what the psalmist is saying, stay with me, meditate on his law, think about God has his king, and ultimately you'll be singing praises. <laughs> but in between, it gets a little messy. Israel's history, history of some individuals. But that's kind of the book ends. Psalms 2 is talking about that king. And God has set his king on Zion. And that is good news. That's what we want to give consideration to. So that's those three points. There is a king. Man rebels against that king. But we need that king. Now, as we take a look at this today, I'm going to take this just a little bit out of order because the way the psalm breaks down, it's really kind of verses 1 through 3, 4 through 9, and then 10 and 12 is kind of like the conclusion. But I want us to take a look at verses 4 through 9 first. So Psalms chapter 2, I'm going to begin at verse 4 and read down through verse 9. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep pleasure, displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. 
I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Back in verse 2, he will declare there are numerous kings and that they oftentimes take counsel against God's king. But nonetheless, the psalmist is declaring God has set his king, my king. He has declared, he has set him in Zion. There is actually only one true king. And God says, he's mine. That's my king. There's some interesting kind of concepts in regards to kings and royalty as you think about human history and you think about literature and the way kings have been written about down through the ages. In various cultures, whenever man has written about kings, it's almost been like with a fascination. Do you happen to remember the stories about King Arthur? Do you remember stories about Camelot? That oftentimes, a lot of times, when men are writing about kings, that's kind of the image that they want to give. Oh, this is good. But as you look at history down through the ages, and you think about the relationship of men with kings, how'd that go? (laughs) We're studying the book of Kings on Wednesday night, and how's that going? Oftentimes, what you see in the history of man, the relationship with kings, kings are tyrants. (laughs) Oftentimes, they abuse their subjects. And the subjects rebel and push back against them. They do not like this concept of having somebody rule over them. But yet, when men write, they say it's all good. Do you remember the king? (laughs) And how great it was when we had that king? And how things flourished and men dwelt in security and it was all good. That's kind of the King Arthur Camelot kind of concept that oftentimes men write about. But in reality, that's not what they've experienced. And so the question is, Why all these legends? Why does men write about it with such a fascination and somehow talk about kingdoms as though they were some kind of paradise that men dwelt in? In reality, we know that they weren't. It seems as though men in general have a fascination with that concept. Do they not? So let me ask you, those who are here that are old enough to remember, Do you remember Charles and Diana? Remember when they got married? Do you remember how many millions of people tuned in to watch that wedding? And it was pomp and circumstance. It was a big deal. And people were fascinated by that. More recently, Queen Elizabeth passes away. And people are tuning in. And they're fascinated with that. There's something about that concept of king, of royalty, so forth, that men are fascinated with. And those stories that have been written 
about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and Camelot. It was all good, wasn't it? King Arthur was loved. And those Knights of the Round Table, they defended the kingdom and its subjects. And Camelot, that was that city, wasn't it? And it was beautiful and it was magnificent and everything was wonderful. Somehow, we kind of have this fascination. And there's a couple of things we think about. We think about royalty or we think about that king. We think about someone to look up to. And then we think about, in that sense, when we are fascinated, sort of sort of enthralled by all that, we think about that king and that that king would rule in such a way as that the people would love him. And he would show his love for them. And because of that, it would be all good. And that's the stories. That's the legends. So you know what we oftentimes do? So we don't have a king. But do we have any royalty in this country? Do we have anybody we pick out, we look up to? Think about the celebrities in Hollywood that oftentimes people pick out them and this is the people that they're looking up to. Think about the athletes that sometimes get idolized and that's who people look up to. And oh, I want to be like them. But at the same time, we also recognize and we think about the need for governing, to have laws to live by. And so sometimes we kind of have trouble reconciling or putting those two things together. Now we can have our idols, we can have our royalty, so to speak, we can have those that we look up to, and oh, I want to be like that. But then at the same time, well, we recognize in order for us to function as a society, we've got to have laws. We've got to be able to function together. And so in this country, you know what we have? Well, they say it's going to be threatened on Tuesday, but <laughs> up till this time, you know what we've had? We've had a democracy. Now, I'm going to say something I think is going to shock you, but I'm going to ask you to stay with me. This part you probably identify with and you readily would accept. That concept of having idols like celebrities and athletes and that kind of thing, that's just fantasy. But sometimes people have to have something to strive towards, to look up to. But I want to tell you this, that's just a band-aid on your life. Because sooner or later those folks will let you down. Now here's the part that may shock you. Democracy, it's a band-aid. It's a band-aid. Let me tell you what John Adams, you know John? Second president of the United States. You know what he said about our Constitution? John Adams was known as a great political philosopher. 
And this is what he said about our Constitution. He said, our Constitution was made, was written for only a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. What? What's that mean? It goes like this. What John was saying was, we have laws. We can set up a government and we can write laws so that we might be able to function together as a society. But unless people are motivated to keep those laws, it doesn't work. So what he's saying is the Constitution was really written with the idea behind it. These people have morals. These people are religiously motivated. And these laws that we write, they will keep them. That's what will make this work. But if they become totally immoral, they become irreligious, there's no motivation to keep those laws, those laws are just empty. (laughs) It won't work. That's what he said. There has to be motivation to keep those laws. That's why sooner or later, all human forms of government will ultimately fail. We have democracy, but the absolute truth of the matter is the people who live under that constitution are sinful. And we, bottom line, are not fit to rule. And we need to recognize that in order for it to work. Can you see that? Let me tell you what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah said, O Lord, we know it is not in man to direct his own footsteps. We need a king. We need somebody to look up to. We need motivation to keep those laws that he gives us. Can we see that? And so the Lord has said, I have set my king in Zion. That's good news. But that's not the way men look at it. They want to push back against it. That's why Psalms 1 and 2 is an introduction to the book of Psalms. The godly man meditates upon his law both day and night and recognizes that he will be blessed through it. And Psalms 2, this is my king, look up to him with the motivation of keeping those laws. Can we see that? That's the lead in to the rest of Psalms. And if you stay with him with that concept throughout the book of Psalms, by the time you get to the end, it's praise him. Because now you have seen through all of this it leads to, he was right. He gave us a king, loving, merciful, forgiving, just, righteous. And this king 
gives himself for his subjects in hopes that the subjects will in turn give themselves to him. Can we see that? That's Psalms. That's the bookend. That's the lead-in. And in Psalms 2, he says, the God has set his king on Zion. And yet men look at that and they want to push back. I don't want somebody ruling over me. Verse 3, let us break those bonds. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens will laugh at them. Man's rebellion. Now let me read verse 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So when we read that in verse three, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us kind of language that is used there. And whenever we read that, we think about somebody being in chains. And whenever we think about somebody being in chains immediately, what comes to mind? We think about someone that has been enslaved. That's not really the concept that is being set forth in Psalms 2. The concept that is being set forth in Psalms 2 is there's an owner and that we are owned by someone. Not that we are just being enslaved by someone. But yet man looks at that and he pushes back and he says, let us throw off those chains. Oh, that's just enslaving if you buy into that concept. What the psalmist is talking about is like taking on a yoke. We're not that familiar with yokes in this day and age, so maybe we would think about like a bridle or we would think about like a harness. And so there would be an owner and they would place a bridle, they would place a harness and then they would be able to guide, that they would be able to direct. And that's the point that the psalmist is trying to set forth, that the owner might be able to guide, the owner might be able to direct, not to just enslave, not to degrade, but rather to direct and to guide. And that ultimately that would be in your benefit. But the concept that men have is this. I don't care if he is the owner. I don't want anybody to own me. And the way they push back is, I'm my own man. (laughs) Ever heard that? Have you ever said that? I'm my own person. I do what I want to do. And that's the basic instinct. That's what the psalmist is saying in verse 3. That's the basic instinct of the human heart. Push back, break those bonds, release us. I'm my own person. That thinking right there is the flaw that leads to failure. And we don't want to acknowledge it. That somehow that that might be beneficial. 
Let me tell you the way one writer put it. He said, on the walls of hell, there's a sign that reads, I am my own. (laughs) I am my own. It went on to say, that's the conviction that will lead a person to hell. That's also the conviction that creates hell on earth. I am my own. I only watch out for number one. And I'm not concerned about anything or anybody else. That's the kind of conviction that destroys people, families, neighborhoods, communities, nations, and lives. And if you operate on that level, that I am my own, I answer to no one, I'm the captain of my soul, the master of my fate, that attitude will create more problems than you can imagine. Talk to a parent sometime that has raised or attempted to raise a rebellious child. You can't tell me I'm my own person. Ask them what that's like. That's what the psalmist is saying about the way men push back against God. And at the same time, when you think about a child-parent relationship and that same parent is saying, don't you see that I love you? Don't you see that the things that I do for you is because I love you? And yet they push back. You don't tell me. So what the psalmist is acknowledging in verse 3 is that we hate that idea of a king, of someone ruling over us. That even if they want to guide us, even if they want to direct us in the way that is best for us, we don't want any help. I'll do it my own. I'm going to do it my way. You know, sometimes if you talk to people in this country, and I think I talked about this recently, not too long ago, about surveys that are done in this country and the amount of people who confess that they have or believe in God. Within the United States, when you just ask people, do you believe in God? The percentage is still way high. It's upper 80s into the 90s. 90% of people say, I believe in God. (laughs) What they don't believe in is that same God telling them how to live. (laughs) I don't believe in that. (laughs) Then you have to tell them, well, you don't really believe in God. Because the God who made you and everything in this world, He wants to show you how to live in a way that's best for you. To take His yoke so that He might guide you. But Paul explains it this way in Romans 8, about verse 7. The carnal mind is enmity towards God. So man on his own does not recognize what God is trying to do for us. That's the carnal mind. Oh, I believe in God as long as He just stays out of my life. 
But isn't it ironic that oftentimes the very same people will talk about, you know what the world needs? The world needs more love. The world needs more goodness. The world needs more kindness. Forgiveness, mercy, understanding, compassion. It needs that. Well, let me tell you this. When love, mercy, kindness, goodness, compassion, justice, righteousness, all of that showed up in one package, you know what men did with it? They spit on it. They hurled insults at it. They arrested it. They crucified it. They killed it. They buried it. But it wouldn't stay buried. But that's what they did with it. So people will say, I believe in God. But they're opposed to the concept what's revealed on the pages of scripture a God that says you're not your own that's your mind you belong to me and I made you with a purpose and what I want for you I want you to take my yoke I want you to take my harness See, that's where the yoke comes in. That's what he was saying from Mount Zion. That's what he was saying in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what he was saying through Peter when Peter said, you shall be holy for I am holy. So they're not opposed to the concept of God. They're just opposed when God says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. But here's the iron. It's only through that yoke that he can guide us to the life that we're really looking for. Notice what the psalmist says in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Ever stop and think about that? Sometimes we just read that and we think, you can't throw off God. God made us. He made the world. He made the laws that govern this world. You're not going to escape God. And so we think, well, that's what he's talking about. Well, in part of that, that's absolutely true. But there's another part of that about where he laughs when he says, God looks at us and thinks, you say you're own, your own? <laughs> and you say you're looking for the good life, but you don't want to listen to what I have to tell you? <laughs> that's a laugh. Take a look around. What has happened in this world? It's because men aren't subject to the king. That's the reason why we're in the mess we're in. Jesus said it like this over in Mark the 8th chapter about verse 35. Any man who desires to save his life will lose it. But if he loses it 
for my sake, he will find it. Can you see the concept? And that's what escapes men. I'm my own. I'll save my own life. And Jesus is saying, you know what will happen? You'll lose it. But if you lose that life, for my sake, you'll actually find it. You'll find what you're looking for. So what the psalmist is saying is oftentimes they fail to see the benefit of a king and the motivation that comes through that king. So we need the king. I'll read verse 10 and 12. Now therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. That's what the psalmist was saying in the very first psalm. The man who meditates upon his law day and night, he will be blessed in all that he does. And now he comes to the second psalm and he says, there's a king that rules over you. And men push back and say, I don't want a king. And the psalmist is trying to get him to see, no, you really do want this king. And it's in your best interest. And this king has sacrificed for you. Now he wants you to give your life to him. And you'll find, if you quit trying to save your own life and lose your life for him, you'll actually find what you're looking for. It's a paradox. <laughs> and men have trouble seeing that. And so the psalmist says, kiss the king. Embrace the king. Come to recognize the benefits of having that king. So what the psalmist is doing, he's actually setting forth a choice. And he says in verse 10, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges, that there serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. In other words, you push back and you refuse that life you're trying to save, ultimately you'll lose it. The difficult part in all this is convincing their people the, the need for a king and the benefit that comes from having that king. The difficult part is getting people to understand that constraint can actually lead to freedom. To getting people to understand that service actually becomes your salvation. That we need that yoke. And that that yoke is the only path to get to your freedom. It's sin that binds. It's the king that sets you free. And we have trouble seeing it. But if you talk to people who are in prison, not just the kind of prison like the federal government or the state builds. Talk to the person who's in prison to drugs or to alcohol 
or to pornography or talk to those who are locked in emotional prison of jealousy and envy, hatred or bigotry, resentment or selfishness. And they can't find happiness in life because they're locked in that prison. And we need to find the king and we need to find his yoke because that's the way out. And sometimes people can't see that. You mean if I serve, I'll be free? (laughs) Yeah. I think most of you probably know that just a few years ago, for six years, I was at Park Hill South and worked with online classes. So here's, here's kind of the catch to all that, though. Online classes were offered to high school kids. <laughs> high school kids that are just yearning for freedom, so to speak. And so the school district decides it's a good idea. I'm like, who thought this up? School district decides it's a good idea to offer online classes, okay, but in these online classes, then the student has an option whether or not they want to come for that class. That's a good idea for a 16-year-old kid, a 15-year-old kid. You have an option whether or not you're going to come to class. And so at the beginning of every semester, we would sit up down in the library Here's the online classes that are, uh, that are offered. And kids would be signing up, and I would be running around from table to table begging them to come to class. Some would come. A lot wouldn't. But I'd be running around begging them to come. Come to class, come to class. And they'd be like, no, I don't need you. They wouldn't say this, but this is what they think. I don't need you, and I don't need that room. I don't need you, and I don't need somebody looking over me. I'm my own man. I'm my own person. Okay. And so about halfway through the semester, because I still had to monitor grades, right? Teachers still had to monitor grades. About halfway through the semester, guess what? All of a sudden, they're showing up. (laughs) Because on their own, they couldn't do it. They needed that yoke. Can you see that? I need somebody to watch over me. I need some kind of boundaries for which I can live in and I can be successful in. They didn't want to acknowledge they needed it. But a lot of times then they came to see that they needed it. And those who didn't, and they refused, guess what happened? It's the same thing. Actually, through that yoke, they could be successful. They could reach their potential. Actually, through that yoke, potential was released. They could be all that they could be. You ever heard that before? And that's what the psalmist is saying. You need that king. You need that yoke. Because through that, your potential can be released. It can be realized. It can be enjoyed. 
It can be shared. It can benefit others. And it can bring glory to the king. See, sometimes spiritually, we have to acknowledge that we really need that. You know what Paul said over in Galatians 3, about verse 24 and 25? You know what he said about the law? He said the law was a tutor to bring us to Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of people go, I don't need no tutor. (laughs) That's what they were saying. I don't need no tutor. I don't need somebody watching over me. I don't need somebody telling me what to do. And you know what Paul said? The law was a tutor to bring you to Jesus Christ. But once Christ has come, then you're under the faith. Once you realize you have a king and that it's beneficial, then... You're no longer under the law. Why? Because you become ungodly? And live an unlawful life? No, because now you understand. Now you know how to live and to be successful. And you live by the faith. Can you see that? How do you honor the king? Jesus said, why call me Lord, Lord, and then do not the things which I say? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John 10, I came that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. Can you see that? You know what James said about it? For all those folks that think the law is not a good idea, you know what James said about it over James chapter 1? We look into the perfect law of liberty. Can we see that? I come to understand. I need that king. I need his yoke. So Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. The king inviting us, come take his yoke. It's beneficial. That's what the psalmist is saying. In Psalms 2. So we're going to extend the invitation to any and all that are here this morning. You've never rendered obedience unto the gospel of Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to do that very king. This is the king that gave his life for you. This is the king that wants you to give your life back to him. If we can help you in any way, you let us know while together we stand and while we sing.